Now, getting into the sermon. I wish I could claim originality for this week's sermon, but I can't. I owe everything to a professor of mine from PUC called Dr. Myron Widmer. He had a lot to say about worship. And one thing that was huge for him was the different ways that different people who worship see God. I'm going to teach you some new words today. Transcendent, repeat after me. Imminent, imminent, yes. So these are two different views of God that we see people hold today. The transcendent God is the all-powerful, all-wise God who is at a distance and other from us. Whereas the imminent God, as Dr. Widmer would put it, is big friend in the sky. Now, this view is legitimate because Jesus came as an imminent God, as a close-up God to feel and observe our, our daily pains. He cried at the tomb of Lazarus. He cried for Jerusalem. He had to do this up close. But today I'd like to talk to you, and I think these two things can go together. Today I'd like to talk to you about the holy God, the transcendent God, the God who is our creator. This, this sermon, we're going to talk about the steps of worship. Last time we talked about the joy of worship, and it is joyful once we know who God is. But I want to get into more detail and talk about the steps of worship. The first step is to see God. Turn with me to Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, we'll get back to him towards the end, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying, and they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. This is also in your bulletin, if it, that's easier for you. So the first step is to see God. And we do this through our hymns. We do this through our preaching. If you look at our bulletin really closely, you'll see that the whole mission of our church is to help people know God. So what did Isaiah see? He saw the Lord seated on a throne. So God is in charge. He sees him high and exalted. He is in heaven. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. Two wings covering their faces, two covering their feet, and two flying in midair. I find it very interesting that it's the face and the feet that are covered. Because... If you remember from the story of Moses, 
Moses' face glowed so much that people couldn't bear to look at it after seeing God. They're covering their face out of respect for God's holiness. And also, remember God saying to Moses, take off your shoes for you are on holy ground. They are covering their feet out of respect for holy ground because this is where God is. Oh, I skipped something. The train of his robe filled the temple. In many cultures, I just learned this not too long ago, in many cultures, the length of the train of one's garment was a sign of status. And there were very strict rules about how long of a train someone could wear. So if, his, if the train of his robe filled the whole temple, that means that God is greater than everyone else because no one else can have a train that long. Sorry, ladies, if you wore a cathedral anything to your wedding. So these seraphs, getting back to them, they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. If I were to translate it more accurately, it would be holy, holier, holiest. This means that God is extremely holy. And what does it mean for something to be holy? For it to be set apart, for it to be different. God is different. The whole earth, and this is what makes him different, the whole earth is full of his glory. Let's talk for a moment for a minute about how the earth is full of his glory. Did any of you ever have to build models of cells when you were in school? I want a show of hands. I know I had to. My teacher made us build it out of something edible. And he gave us extra points if it tasted good. But it's a major undertaking. Whether you're someone who had to make one yourself or a parent who helped a child make a cell model. I mean, you have the nucleus, you have the... I've forgotten so much of this. <laughs> you have so many different parts to a cell, and yet it's such a small thing. You have the riboflavins. You have the, the mitochondria. The mitochondria. There's so many parts to it that I've forgotten because I went into theology and Spanish instead of biology. But this is so complicated, and yet there are millions of them in you alone. And if you take those cells and you and you look at something as complicated as a human being. Do you know how complicated the brain is? Oh my word. I see a therapist and he talks about how the brain does this and the brain does that and my eyes sort of glass over and I'm like, uh-huh, okay. So the midbrain does something and the other part of the brain does something else. It makes sense to him, but there are so many mysteries about the brain that we don't know. The brain is a sign of God's glory. There's, I have no, I do not see how something as incredible as the brain, let alone the way the brain interacts with the eyes, I don't see how that ha could have come about by chance. And then, when we think of the earth being full of God's glory, just think about something as useful as water. If you think about it, just about everything on this earth depends on water. Without it, 
nothing works. We, we would just be a wasteland. And how did God think of a material as versatile, as water? But more than that, we owe our existence to God. And our existence is to God's glory. So at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. It's very interesting to me that the temple is filled with smoke because it says in Revelation that the smoke represents the prayers of God's people. So not only is he the almighty, almighty, transcendent creator God, but he is also the imminent God who hears our prayers, who hears our prayers and loves us. Now, a lot of worship services stop there, and I'm guilty of this too. It is vital to see God, and perhaps there's so much God to see that this is all the farther many of us get, but there is more available to us in worship. And that brings us to step two, and that is to see ourselves. Let's see how Isaiah saw himself. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I find it very interesting that he mentions unclean lips. There's many flashy sins described in the Bible, murder, adultery, but most of us can honestly say we've never tangled with those. If you have, I'm sorry, that's rough. Most of us sin through our lips, whether it's in what we say about each other, oh, a juicy morsel of gossip can destroy someone's life. Or what, it's, or what we say about God, perhaps while we're cutting someone off in traffic, or they're cutting us off. Out of the heart, out of the mouth, the abundance of the heart speaks. And our sin, sin is a deeper matter than what we do. It's a matter of what's in our hearts. And when we speak, we are showing what's in our hearts. Whatever we talk about the most, that is what is in our hearts. And if all we ever talk about is something harmless, but it's all we ever talk about, like say our favorite TV show, maybe we have a problem with something like idolatry, that that's become more important to us than God. Who is the focus of our thoughts? Who is the focus of our conversation? But it's interesting that he doesn't just mention his own personal sin. He suddenly feels sorrow for everyone else's as well, a compassionate sorrow. Not one that motivates him to go out and do a hellfire and brimstone sermon, but one that has him crying that he comes from a people of unclean lips. And he feels how he is a part of that. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. If we really get a good look at God, 
and I mean really get a good look at him, we can't help but see ourselves, but see ourselves in comparison, see ourselves struggling with sin, see ourselves broken and confused and sinful compared to this great, good, wonderful God who is both our creator and the one who hears our prayers. Would it be healthy to stop at step two? No. You see, the thing about these steps is that unless you go to the end, there's a temptation for something very wrong to happen. With the first step, the temptation is to sort of look at God, set him on the shelf, and go off and do whatever. To make, to turn God into a beautiful painting to look at. With step two, the results of staying there can be much more tragic. When I was in middle school, I had a very sensitive conscience. And I would beat myself up about things for days, stupid things. Well, eventually I actually did something that was really wrong and not just a stupid mistake. I did something to hurt a good friend of mine. And I felt so guilty about this that even after she forgave me, I held on to that guilt for months and months. I couldn't forgive myself. I compared myself to Judas Iscariot. I thought I had done something that wrong. And as time went on, I even began to get suicidal dreams, and that is a terrible place to be. <sighs> Eventually, I was on a camp out with a bunch of pathfinders. I was a pathfinder then, just a little companion. And you know, sometimes on these outings, there tends to be a night where everyone just cries and spills all of their beans about everything that's bothering them. This happens. I can't explain. It's like the camping effect. Everyone gets real when we're camping. I was not the only one who confessed a, a deep, dark secret that day, but I told my Pathfinder counselor about what dreams I was having. In her wisdom, she went to my parents about it. In my lack of wisdom, I then lied to my parents to get them to stop worrying. But I had seen their reaction. I had seen their reaction. And I'll never forget the day that that was the day when I finally entered the third, the third part of worship. I remember exactly what I was doing. I was doing the laundry of all things. When I thought about my parents' reaction to hearing about these dreams, and I thought about Jesus on the cross, and I realized that they loved me and that I was forgiven, that I did not deserve any longer to suffer for this thing I had done because God had forgiven me. That was the day I was saved. And I'll never forget it, that beautiful day. So let's see how Isaiah experiences forgiveness. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, 
and your sin atoned for. That coal was from the altar where the sacrifices were made. It pointed to Jesus and how Jesus cleanses us from our sin. There are, our denomination, Seventh-day Adventist, has many criticisms of our friends, the Catholics. But the thing that I love about watching my Catholic friends worship is how when they come out of there, they come out of there forgiven. Because that whole service and ceremony is, at its best, centered on forgiveness. I'm not saying that we should go the way of the dragon and start doing any Catholic things, but we need a genuine experience of conversion. We need a genuine sorrow for sin, a genuine acceptance of of the sweet grace of God. Then and only then can we move on to step four, service. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. I love how Isaiah's story ends there. Well, it doesn't end there. He writes this enormous, beautiful collection of prophecies. Some of the clearest thing, teachings we have about Jesus in the Old Testament. Oh, beautiful stuff. But he does it after the experience of conversion. He does it because of the experience of conversion. And conversion is how we worship when we turn in ourselves to God. It mentioned the death of King Uzziah in the very beginning of the chapter. King Uzziah was a king of Judah who was blessed by God and who loved the Lord until he grew powerful. Then Pride came into his heart, and he decided to skip straight to step four without going through the conversion experience. He got it into his head that he would go and burn incense in the temple. Now, kings weren't supposed to do this. There was a separate priesthood for a reason. Everything in the temple had a meaning that wasn't supposed to be messed with because it all pointed to something in the plan of salvation. The incense in particular was about how Jesus carries our prayers to the throne of his father. So it had to be a priest. The priests actually followed Isaiah in as he went to burn incense in the temple. And he actually did it, even though the priests tried to tell him not to. And you know what? The Lord struck him with leprosy. Why? Like Uzzah in the Ark, this is a difficult story for a lot of people. But he did it because there was a great deal of pride in Uzziah's heart that had to be taken away, had to be broken for Uzziah's own salvation. The greatest barrier that we have to true worship is pride. Pride comes in so many different forms, and it doesn't matter whether that pride is that you are a king with a mighty army, or that you make the best potluck cookies of anybody around, 
pride is a barrier to worship. And I would like to apologize as someone who frequently asks for volunteers that we don't want you volunteering if we're really good. If we're really, if we're really following the biblical model, we don't want you volunteering unless you've actually had a chance to experience a conversion experience. We don't want you volunteering because we twisted your arm. This is not fair to you or to the ministries that you volunteer for. We want you to know Jesus. We want you to learn the great, beautiful grace of God. I would like to invite, invite you to consider not volunteering for anything until you have felt that burning coal from the altar, until you have felt the forgiveness of God. The song we're about to sing was written by someone with an incredible conversion experience. His name was John Newton. And you know what his great sin was? Slave trading. Here was a man who actually had degraded enough morally that he would actually capture human beings, thinking innocent human beings, put them on board a ship where, because of conditions, a third would inevitably die in each crossing, and sell them to certain death, working themselves to death in the Caribbean. Here was a man who had done some of the worst sin that could be imagined. Now, it may be easy for us to say, I can't relate to that. I've never been a slave trader. But if we look at Jesus' teachings, it's all about what's in our hearts. It's all about what's on our lips. None of us in this room, I don't think, have ever been slave traders. But we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But praise be to God, because he forgives. And that's what I want to leave you with today. Forgiveness. So let's sing that classic song, Amazing Grace. <laughs>